So today's teaching text comes from John 2, verses 13 to 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, that's a flex, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, it's a flex. (laughs) This is one of my favorite Jesus times. Anyway, okay. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Is that? I'm sorry. Hold on. Thanks be to God. That's literally it. That's my whole talk. Jesus flexed. Uh, <laughs> close your eyes, bow your heads. No looking around. Um, all right, folks, it's, it's for real winter. This is like the real Christians are here. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's cold out there. Wind is blowing. Snow is falling. High's falling. It's sunny today. You, you know what it's like outside. You were just out there. Um, so good, so good to be with you. So good, if you're joining us uh, online, I'm getting used to saying that. I'm sure a couple of years I'll have it. Um, to, to have an epiphany, that's a season we're in as a church. Um, yeah, maybe it's got the best name of any of the church calendar seasons. I don't know. We could rank them uh, at another time. Um, but epiphany, to have an epiphany is to have an experience where, where the light dawns on you. It is uh, to... Make a connection. It's to have an insight, but usually it's to recognize that that insight is changing something. Uh, You experience maybe something that begins to feel like it's pulling the threads of your life together. Uh, We sometimes aren't even able to define uh, that we've had an epiphany in our lives until we're looking back because because the experience of epiphany is, is implying that it wasn't just a realization, but it was a realization that made a difference. I, I had the chance to go to an event uh, that Sea Dog Theater put on on Friday uh, with uh, this Irish poet and peace worker named, named uh, Padraig Otuma. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, Fascinating man, uh, has, has worked in uh, conflict resolution and mediation in, in Northern Ireland for, for many years, uh, you know, mediating conflict between, you know, Protestant and Catholic, Irish and British. Um, he's also a, a quite accomplished poet. Uh, he has a, a poetry podcast, Poetry Unbound, if you guys are familiar with the 
um, with that, fantastic. If not, it's connected to On Being with Krista Tippett. Some of you may just like, just look at me with a blank stare in your mask if you've never heard of any of this. Great. Um, uh, and even just the success of this guy's got a poetry podcast. That gives me like a tiny bit of hope in, in the world. Like things are, maybe they're going to be okay. Um, so for the first hour of this event, and it was work to get there. I mean, you remember Friday, it was like, this is, snow is really coming in, it's windy, it's cutting through all the layers. And so I show up in this beautiful church sanctuary in, in Manhattan that I actually have quite a few uh, memories in from my early years in New York and over the years I've just been in this space. It's one of those beautiful sanctuaries, high ceilings, that's sort of like you get that sensory imagination beginning, like the, the vault, you know, like massively high ceilings, the, the exalted place where the word is, is, is spoken, just the beauty of the stained glass of the place. And he had this poet reading from the front. I was a little bit late, but the first hour, Padre uh, shared with us. He just sort of shared some of his experience doing peace work around the world and, and in Ireland, uh, shared some of his story, and then he'd stop at a moment and read a few poems. And one of the things that struck me most from his, his sort of time of sharing in this first hour was this idea of form and how sometimes he experienced uh, greater freedom in constraining his creativity into the form of a, partic- a particular poem. And he described this traumatic event in his life and he said, I, I, I just took a couple of sonnets and he said, I'm going to just write... I'm only going to write 14 lines on this like very intense experience and see what, what comes of it. He made a series of them. And then later he moved on to, to talk about that in, in the messiness of conflict resolution, in the messiness of real tension, real pain, you know, war and post-war environments. And, and how do you even start bringing people to the table in a moment like that? And he, he evoked form. And he basically said, um, you know, they're, they're, the, the form helps me in my work as a poet, but also the form can help me in conflict resolution. He started to share some tools. Like he said, particularity is a really important aspect in these types of conversations. And so he said, I'll often tell someone, um, if, you are, if you're going to tell the story of your life, what would the first sentence be? And he said, now, put out of your mind all the ideas that you have to make it perfect or that it's going to be published one day or that someone else is going to read it. Just for today, just for this moment, if you were going to say, the story of my life begins with this sentence or the story of this conflict begins with this sentence. And it just, it ha- I had a tense week. I had some family conflict. Uh, it came out of the blue. It, was just a, it, the, it felt like a gift to sort of hear this uh, in, in the moment. And uh, the second hour, after it was over, everyone clapped, and then we went down for a, a little bit of a smaller uh, gathering with, with him. And so he invites us in, and he talks about this form in the first hour. In the second hour, um, he gives it to us as an exercise. So he says to everyone that's sitting around in this uh, sort of basement dungeon of this beautiful church, um, he says, um, if just for today you were going to write the story of your life, what would the first sentence be? And pe- people shared. And actually, whenever someone's talking like this in, in front of me, I always wish they would stop and li- like, give me a second to think about what mine would be. So I'm going to do that. I-, I want you to think about what, if you were going to tell just today, just in this moment, particularity, just going to tell the story of your life just today, what would the first sentence be?
It's kind of nice. We don't have much silence in my house. <laughs> so he has people share their, their sentence, and he counts the number of words, and he says, what word's most important to you, and what tense are you speaking from, and, and why, did you use the, why did you choose this word, and why this moment, and, and, and all this stuff, as you would imagine, all this stuff starts to come out from people's stories. It was a really kind of beautiful moment. Then, um, I don't know if he was just copying out. He's like, I don't have any more poems to read. I don't have any more lecture to give. Let's do an exercise. I, I, I could see myself totally doing that. But um, I bet he had a lot more. But he, he invited us then, second part, to start from a totally different place of our lives. So not this moment. Some other time in your life where you felt completely different than you feel today. And start from there and write the first sentence of the story of your life. So I'm just going to give you a second to think about that. Totally different point in your life. First sentence. So then... He kind of brilliantly invites us um, to share, to share these two moments and to see how those two sentences are in conversation with one another. What is the person's uh, state of being, realization uh, here, and what, what is it here, and what's the difference? And, and again, I mean, just like soul level stuff is coming out of people, and they have it, this talking to a stranger. He just asked them to give two sentences about their lives, and all of a sudden, like they're digging, and it's like, hey, the form is giving room for genuine, deep, kind of like soul level work to be done in this moment. It's like, this is, this is, this is something like wisdom. This is something like a, a, a powerful invitation. And I noticed in my own experience and in listening to others that epiphanies filled the spaces between the two sentences. Deep realizations about what it is to be a human being. Deep, sometimes deep realizations about what it is to be a human being in a world where there is or isn't a God. There was a super awkward moment. I don't know how you get in these situations, but it's like all these strangers and he's like, uh, if you want to share yours, he's like, totally fine. Beautiful, like, l- like lilting Irish accent. Totally fine if you want. I'm not going to do it. Totally fine if you want to keep it to yourself. So tempting. I want to try, but I want. If you want to keep it to yourself, that's beautiful. If you want to share, that's beautiful. And the whole time, I'm like, not going to share. Totally not going to share. No way I'm going to share. Then it gets to, he's like, last turn. I'm like, all right, I'm already here. I'm in this dungeon basement of the church. It's been a cool night. Maybe I'll raise my hand. So he's like, anyone, he like turns to our side of the room, and I'm like, um, and three other people right next to me raise their hands at the same moment. He's like, one, two, three. Um, so they go, and I think he's called on me, okay? So I think he's called on me. One person goes, two person goes, and, and I don't know. Like, I speak in front of people, but my heart starts racing. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to talk now. I'm going to read these. And I, so he, he gets to three, and, and I think he's pointing to me, but he's actually pointing to the person right in front of me who then starts to read. So I'm just like, ha, ha, ha. And say, and I say, and I say nothing. And I listen to her, and like this unbelievable experience happens in my body where I go from just like sheer, you know, adrenaline to like, oh, I don't get to talk. Um, so for that reason, I'm going to share my sentences with you now. Again. One moment, like just the first thing that came into your mind, and I, I want to give you a million disclaimers, but I was like, I'm not going to start with like, um, it was a cold winter day when I was born in February. Um, 
So I had this moment, and, and this is the sentence. This is number one. I came to know I existed carrying groceries behind my mother when the glass apple juice jar broke, sliced my leg, and I saw the blood. I had this very clear memory of walking across my front yard trying to hero carry groceries um, in those like, you know, uh, plastic bags, and they're clanging against each other, and this apple jar breaks, and it cuts my thigh, and my mom's ahead of me already in the house, and I'm bleeding in the yard, and I don't know why in that moment it happened, but I just had this realization beyond the pain of the cut, like, I am a person. I exist. Have you had that feeling? Like, here I am, awake in a story I didn't choose, and my life is plunging ahead towards a whole bunch of different, you know, scenarios. And I, I don't know exactly how I got here. I don't know exactly what's happening, but I can't really stop it without some horrible tragedy. And I don't want to, but I exist. And I remember that moment. It was like, just, just it's sort of like that space between being a, dr- a dream and awake, a space between, you know, like those childhood realizations of life. Now, second sentence, you ready? Uh, Shaking, we threw what I had brought into the small excuse for a C. And this was a moment in in university I had where I was sort of coming to the end of a wild time of just like, like pure selfishness in all of its forms and substance abuse and all kinds of things. And I was standing as the sun was coming up in West Palm Beach, throwing some, some drug paraphernalia with a friend into the intercoastal waterway, sort of like trembling at the possibility that maybe I could have a different life than this one I keep making miserable for myself. So, you know, the first was this feeling of of existence that was remarkable but also intimidating, that I was alive without having chosen to be. My life is charging ahead into all kinds of possible outcomes. The second was a moment where I realized I had some agency in my life. I could throw things in the ocean if I want to. Um, I, I, could, I could play a part in, in change. And maybe there was a, a, div, you know, a, a divine uh, person inviting me to that change. And maybe things could be better. Maybe things could be easier. Maybe I could play a part in that. And the way those two sentences are connected for me is, re- is really important. It's some of why I'm standing in front of you as a pastor. Like, I think... You know, like we enter a story and then we're invited to a story and the way those two things interplay. So I want to ask you, what are the epiphanies that connect your sentences? Maybe that's a too big of a question for just right this second. And so I want to invite you to do this with a friend. Write those sentences, right? Right? You know, the first sentence of the story of your life right now in this particular moment, write it from another time and see how they relate to one another. After each of these two really dramatic stories in John, John chapter 2, the first uh, being the water is turned into wine at this wedding and, and the party is kept going. And now Jesus has this um, sort of prophetic demonstration in the temple flipping over tables. Like, you know, these two are some of people's favorite Jesus stories. Like, give me the Jesus who turns water into wine. I love that guy. And then other people who are like, you know, like, give me the Jesus flipping over tables. Okay? I want, I want that. I want that guy. And... 
John gives us an interesting detail at the end of both of these stories, and he says that his disciples believed. I mentioned this last week, but it's fascinating to me that that's part of the summary of both of these stories, because these people had already committed to following him. And, and these moments, which are wildly different, by the way, they're like two, two sentences from different times of your life. Both of these experiences helped them to know that they agreed with their own choice to follow Jesus, that he was actually leading them to life. You know, later Peter's gonna say when a bunch of people abandoned Jesus, Jesus is gonna turn to his disciples and say, do you guys wanna go too? And Peter's gonna say, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And some of that is being formed, is being, is, is, is being firmed up in their hearts through these experiences in John 2, as wildly different as they are. They, they begin to believe Jesus is leading them to whatever true life is, abundant life is, eternal life is, an understanding of what the kingdom of God is, that they have a role to play in that, a, a place to participate. So keeping a party going by, by what? By using the ritual purification water, like honestly gross standing sink water, and turning it into fabulous wine in abundance, story one, and then making this arts and crafts project a whip of cords um, and using it to drive out temple workers who were selling animals for people to make as their sacrifices in the temple and they're changing money. So from those two stories, his disciples believed. And then after this story, it says that others believed as well, like honestly. Like the, the interest level, the commitment level, the fascination, the belief in Jesus spilled over the small community that was traveling with him and began to become a crowd, which has mixed results in Jesus' ministry, as we, as we know. He walks into God's house on Passover. That's the setting for this story. And God's house is a pretty interesting theme in the scriptures, um, it shows up all the way from Genesis to Revelation, and, and I'm not going to hit every single spot, but just a couple of high points along the way to get a robust understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about God's house. Eden is presented as a, a place that God has chosen to dwell. It's a, it's a God's house in the story of the scriptures, this, this beautiful place with natural teeming, abundant uh, beauty, a place that, that the story begins in a good place before things get soured and broken and, and, and the fall happens. It is wondrous. It is wildly creative. It is relational. It is uh, awe-inspiring. God's house is this, this place in the natural world that it seems to indicate that this this plurality of a God who was also somehow one had said, let us sort of spill over in creation in Genesis. And there's presence there. There's, there's a communion with this divine being. One of the you know, most beautiful sort of phrases from that is, is that God walked in the cool of the evening. Like, can you imagine just strolling with Yahweh at golden hour, just chatting about like how new everything really seems 
Move along in Genesis, you come to Abraham's story and and God calls this man from security and from a city and from what's established and says, hey, let's go somewhere. I'll tell you where later. And Abraham follows him. And then God says, listen, I'm gonna do something through you because of your faith, because of your obedience. I'm gonna show what I'm like in the world. I'm gonna bless you. And then you're gonna bless the world. And it's, it's it's gonna reveal more and more of my true character. And he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And these animals get split apart. And basically, this is like a pretty brutal, primitive way of ratifying a contract in our mind. But God is saying, I'm making a covenant. And if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And then he passes through. But then he doesn't let Abraham pass through. He passes through again. Basically, like, if you fail on your end of the covenant, I'll take the cost. House of God in that story, it says his presence was represented by a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. Genesis 15. Genesis 28, Jacob is on the is on is on the run. His story is taking some turns, and he ends up at this place called Bethel. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. A refrain that gets repeated in different ways throughout the scriptures. God could be somewhere and you not know it. And then all of a sudden you become aware of it and it's just like. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven, Jacob. We have Moses and God takes up residence inside a bush that's on fire and not being consumed. And he says, I'm sending you to do the work of liberation for my people. And you're going to, and, and G gave us a, a staff devotional uh, th- this week that, that me- mentioned part of this. And she said, uh, what a crazy thing that God says to Moses. He's like, all right, how do I know you're really going to do this? And he says, well, once you've done it, you'll come back here and worship in this place. What? That's not so comforting. Like I got to go to the most powerful empire in the world and speak to Pharaoh. And what you're telling me as a sign of confirmation is when I get through that ordeal, I'll come back here. To your house, burning bush house, mountain house, God's house. God leads Israel in the midst of the community as they've come out of slavery, as a pillar of, of, of a fire, a cloud. Then eventually he says, all right, let's, let's, kiss some, let's bring some, some order here. Let's make it so that, that everyone has access, that it's not just a few. Let's, let's, let's make it so that people can have ways to approach my, my glory, that the, the compatibility of the truly revealed presence of God and the brokenness of the human story is one of the mysteries that seems to be uh, attempting to be resolved in the process of redemption. Like you can't just casually come near the holiness of God without it affecting you in, in some very negative ways without a covering. And so the tabernacle is established as a way to approach God and to say, listen, when you tell a lie in your community, death happens, death of trust, death of relationship. So let's take this this reality and demonstrate it for you. And so this lamb represents the death that takes place because of sin. This is real. These consequences are profound, It's not just like you lied and got away with it and your situation was improved. No, a death entered the story. And that's one sin 
over and over. That story is, is, is repeated and the ripple effects are tremendous. And so God says, let me establish for you a way to have a thriving community. Don't kill each other. Don't steal. Take breaks. Honor me above, above everything else. Don't have another, another. He gives these commandments. And then he says, when you break these commandments, here's how mercy is, is, is poured out. And the tabernacle and all the law around it is about how do you live as a nomadic people with God in your midst. And then eventually Israel gets established and, and, and God's not necessarily super into it, but they're like, we want a king. He's like, fine, not gonna go great. Let me tell you, but you want one, okay. They get a king and then they have this, this, this sort of like experience where they do have a high point with King David and King David is like, listen, I love to play the harp. I love to sing. I'm a warrior poet. I play, you know, like I'm gonna build a tabernacle. You know, we got a tabernacle. I'm gonna build a house for God. That's gonna be my thing. I'm not gonna rest until I finish it. Like a lot of hyperbole in the Psalms, but he gets after it. God says, listen, you got a lot of blood on your hands. You're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. He builds the temple, Solomon. A more permanent tabernacle, a place for God's presence. A place for God's mercy. A place for prayer, communion. Maybe it's not, certainly it's not Eden, <laughs> but it's a, it's a kind of placeholder of 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 connection and, and revelation and and communion and, and mercy and, pre, and presence. The temple was so much more than a building. It was it was so much more than a place where people might gather for religious uh, activity. It was at that you know, it was a representative of what it meant to be God's house, a place of presence, mercy, and prayer. I want to I want to zero in on these words for for the rest. Uh, for the rest of our time. Um, in this story, Jesus like flips out. He ends up speaking specifically to the dove salesman and says, you must stop turning his father's house into a market. In another version, he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for what? For all nations. This is connected to Abraham's call. This is connected to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in Eden. This is connected to Israel's vocation. This is, this is what it looks like to help to participate in Yahweh showing up in the world in a way that people can know this God, connect with this God, live with this God. And now, as people are traveling from all over, <laughs> The world all over Israel for sure, also from, from, from all over surrounding areas. They're traveling to this temple in Jerusalem. And now there is this bustling, noisy market in the middle of church, in the middle of the house of God, sometimes occasionally here at MS51. There's a basketball league right across the lobby. I'm not saying you should go in there and flip over some coach's chair or something. I don't think you should do that at all. You should pray about that. I'm just kidding. There's this bustling, noisy market in the middle of the church, in the middle of the house of God, and specifically in the middle of the court of the Gentiles. 
So Israel, you're gonna be a blessing to the nations and yet the places where the nations are allowed to draw close in the temple has this bustling, noisy market that's going on. So Jesus rolls in at Passover, really significant time, remembering and celebrating liberation, freedom, rescue from slavery, returning to their vocation as the people of God. And he finds people selling cattle, sheep and doves. So they're doing something that's connected to the temple's purpose, but it wasn't the temple's purpose. A lot of scholars believe this market used to take place on the Mount of Olives and for convenience sake, and let's be honest, other reasons, they moved it in to the temple. So they're selling animals and changing money. And it, like, we're like, what's, it's hard for us to get like worked up about this. But I wanna say, I can imagine how easy it would have been to slowly begin justifying this. Listen, people are traveling. They need to bring sacrifices. Instead of having them travel with their livestock, let's sell them some livestock right here when they get here. They can bring the value and then we can give them the animal and then they can go right in and we've solved the problem. I'll set up a booth right here. And, and, and you could see the currency exchange. Listen, these people have, have you know, Tyrian coins from over here, and these have Caesar coins, and we, we gotta have, if we're gonna take the temple tax, and we're gonna let people buy, 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 buy something for their sacrifice. We need, to, we need to sort of unify the currency. And so you see them, they're getting a little bit on the deal with the animals, and they're getting a little bit on the deal with the currency exchange. They had exchanged the true purpose of the temple for something less. And I promise you, because this is so easy and it still happens to us, they didn't think that. (laughs) They were like, this is just a necessary thing. Like so many things in the American church, we do this, right? We turn our father's house into a market. And we're like, this is just how we get the message out. Guys, it's just how we use our influence. And it's so easy to start justifying those things and to slowly slip away from presence, mercy, prayer. That's what Jesus expects his father's house to be. I think he explicitly says it has to be a house of prayer for all nations, but I think the reality of the sacrificial system and the Shekinah glory of Yahweh dwelling in the Holy of Holies, we can safely say, amongst other things that might have been true about the reality of temple, that Jesus expected his Father's house to be a place of presence experienced, of mercy expressed, of prayer expected. You, you had, a, had a feeling like that of experiencing mercy where it's not an idea, but it comes crashing into your heart. You know you're forgiven. You know you're loved. You know you're welcomed. You know you're embraced. You had a feeling of pouring out your heart to God and knowing that he's not just some distant deity, but he loves to hear the concerns of your heart, even the stuff that seems like insignificant. Surely the God of the universe doesn't care about this issue with my rent or my sister or my work. But this mattered so much to Jesus that it says this prophetic word is, is evoked here. Zeal for your house will consume me. Passion for my father's house being a presence of mercy, 
of, of, of his presence, of prayer, passion for that is, is threatening to eat me up. We have enough time to ask three simple questions of this story. Some of you are shaking your head, and I understand. It's not your first week here. That's fine. What is Jesus doing? Who is Jesus revealed to be? What are we invited into? You're like, that's too much. I know. We're going to try. What, what is Jesus doing? He's enacting this uh, prophetic protest to what's going on in his father's house. He's saying, listen, this, this can't be. This, is, this, is, this is, is not the way. He is angry. Zeal for your house is threatening to consume me. Zeal for your house is eating me up inside. And yet, I want to say, I don't think Jesus flips out and loses his temper here. And the reason is the arts and crafts project. I think making a whip of cords is the equivalent of counting to 10. Take some time. You have to braid it together. I don't know what style he uses to braid it together, but Jesus makes a whip of cords. And maybe he's grumbling under his breath the whole time, but he's Jesus. I imagine that he's, he's prophetically chill. Zeal is coursing through his body, of course. But he's, he's going to take this action because What's at stake? He's contending for the true purpose of the temple. Listen, if this becomes a place where people can't really meet with God, so much is lost. The true, the true purpose of the temple is being obscured and, and wildly the burden of that distortion is falling hardest on the poor. The burden of the distortion of the temple's purpose is, fall, is falling hardest on the poor. Imagine you're traveling in, right? If you could travel with your herds, that says something about your wealth. That says something about the, the places that you can, the space you can take up, the, the people that you have with you to help you work your own, pro, your own property. You roll in, you have what you need already. That's one thing. You've traveled all this way. Maybe you spent everything that you have on food and lodging just to get here. You come up the temple steps exhausted. You come into the, t- the court of the Gentiles. You have nothing, but you're here for Passover. You're here for worship. You're here to experience presence, mercy, and prayer. And right away, there's a markup on the doves. This is the sacrifice of the poor. And you don't have, you find out you don't have the right coins, and so you have to trade them out. And and you find out the value that you get back is is a little bit less than what you gave. And now, all of a sudden, your, your fumes are basically nothing. You're here to worship God, and it feels like, ugh, I don't quite have what it takes. Maybe this is for someone else, like those types of insecurity, accusation questions that come in when worship is getting distorted and the burden is falling hardest on those who have the least. The church has become transactional instead of relational. What can we get from you? And if you can't give it anymore, then we'll move on to someone who can. Over the centuries, the church has experienced something that I'm going to call for just this moment, and and I'm not going to stand behind it forever, but death by addition. Padre freed me up to just say, this counts for just today, okay? It shows up in places of worship over and over again where you add stuff in for people to do because basically God is not controllable, but we still got to give people an experience, 
We need them to come away wanting to come back. There needs to have been something that they could do while they were here and come away with some level of nice experience so that we're winning that they're coming back to our church. And so if we can't guarantee that we're going to give them God, well, we can at least give them this quality of music, this quality of teaching, this quality of kids ministry, right? And so slowly we do become consumers because we're like, what do you got for me? Because I know what the church down the street's got for me. It's not just that. It's not just like we, we feel a lack of like, I can't guarantee people are going to have a transcendent experience with the God of the universe when they come into our middle school auditorium. So let's dress it up a little bit so they leave with something. It also happens that when God does show up, we're like, absolutely, we, we did it. He's here. People are experiencing. And so when churches begin to experience fruit, they start to tell that story. And then other people, death by addition, say, I don't know what works, but this seems to work. We're gonna do exactly that here. And church becomes transactional again. It's not like, God, what are you doing in our time and our place? It's like, this worked over here. I heard it at the conference. Let's do it here. And we cut and paste and apply it all. And it's like, where's God? He's supposed to be here. These are the things you're supposed to do. This goes all the way back. You remember Peter at the transfiguration? Jesus is shining before him, revealing his, his like, true glory and divinity. The, the, the Elijah and Moses are there. Pretty high, I mean, literally, mountaintop experience if there ever was one. Peter's like, let me get a tent. Let's hang here. And God just interrupts him. Shh. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. God is not controllable. That is quite intimidating. That does not fit our market schemes. We like control. Give us some rates of exchange, some tables of merchandise. We can deliver. You can't read a story like this and say, you know, to pray together, are there things that we are about as a church that Jesus wants to flip the tables over? Come Holy Spirit. I mean, it's definitely still in there, but I feel like 12 years of doing this, I feel like wonderfully beaten up enough <laughs> that my ego is a little bit like, God, this is your thing. Not, you know, all the caveats, but... What do you want to do here? What do we need to let go of? What do we need to change? What tables do you want to flip over? A anything you want to do, please have your way. I used to get so bent out of shape when someone left our church, especially someone that I knew. It just ripped me up and said, they don't like my preaching. Maybe it's too long. Like, <laughs> you want to have a coffee and tell me why you left, please? I want to be heard again. Um, and it's still, honestly, people matter 100%, and it still, it still affects me, but it's a totally different game now. And I, I see that as a mercy. We can talk about it. We can have a coffee. What is Jesus doing, this prophetic act, this protest, this declaration that the temple is meant to be his Father's house, a place of presence, mercy, and prayer? And then who is Jesus revealed to be? 
I'm going to give it to you wildly quickly. In, 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 in four moments in this story, he's revealed to be the son of God again. He's revealed to be uh, playing in this moment the role of the high priest. Um, he is revealed as a true prophet, uh, and he's also revealed as the lamb. So son of God, we hear him say, zeal for your father's house is, is you know, or we hear said about him, zeal for your father's house is consuming me. You remember the baptism moment? When Jesus comes up out of the water and the Father declares his affirmation. This is a moment of, of Trinity uh, reciprocation. Jesus says back to the Father, like, I delight in you. Like, I, I want your house to be a place of purity, a place of life, a place of presence, a place of mercy. And so the Father says down to the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The, 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 the Son says back to the Father, your house matters to me. Your presence matters to me. Your, your, your mercy being expressed matters to me. People being able to live in communion and in, in, in talking and listening, conversation with you, God, matters to me. He's the son of God. He's playing the role of the high priest, making sure that people can get to God, can experience presence, mercy, prayer. He's a true prophet. And what a true prophet does is speaks the heart of God to us in real life matters. And this is why it's sometimes tough to hear them. Because they tell us the, what the heart of God looks like worked out in the details of our actual experience, the Sunday rhythm of our actual church the office dynamics of our actual job, the sibling relationship of our actual family, the prophetic is how we come to know the heart of God in a specific place. And then the lamb, the one who would replace all the sacrifices. Last week we see him taking the purification water and making it into wine. Here we see him interrupting the sacrificial system and saying something else is coming with his actions. What are we invited into? This is the last question. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're gonna raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus has spoken. The temple he had spoken of was his body. Was his body. Jesus is coming to personally, personally embody the vocation of Israel to bless the world, to repair, to heal the world. He is the word made flesh. He has come to open the way to God. He is an outpouring of God's mercy. He is a facilitator of conversation with God. He is an intercessor. In John 17, he says, give them a share of what we have shared from before the creation out of that overflow that the whole world was made from, let them know they're invited into that intimate dance with Trinity. Baptize them into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to do the things that I have done. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so simply means that you and I are deeply and forever loved. It means that we can become what Jesus is here, temple, temple. <laughs> 
One of the big theological trajectories of the scriptures is that human beings are going to become temple. They're going to become the dwelling place of God. The word made flesh and dwelt among us means Jesus took on a flesh tabernacle and dwelt among us. He became this place of temple in his body. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out and the dwelling place of God becomes his people. And this is also the picture of Revelation. So from Genesis to Revelation, the house of God is on the move into the people of God. God has chosen to dwell with us. God has chosen to dwell in us. So what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means for us is that we are temple. What do we say temple is? Presence. Living from and with the presence of God is your divine calling as a human being. It's your invitation. Mercy. Receiving and giving mercy is a part of our connection to Jesus and the gospel. It is a part of our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. Presence, mercy, and then prayer. Prayer is the conversation of our lives. Talking and listening with God. So we said about our church, this is a personal and communal thing. Are there things that God would say, I want to flip the tables over on that in your community? Well, let's take it personally for just a moment. Are there things in our lives that Jesus is saying, this is taking away from your true life, from your true purpose? These things are hurting you and hurting your neighbor. Just search your heart for one moment. We lift our hands in worship, but what if we don't lower them ever in service? What if we love our comfort so much that we will give whatever it costs? What if we are forgetting the poor? Sex, money, power, let's take them quickly in turn. What, what if we make sex into just simply another need for us or another adventure for our stories regardless of love and we tear at the fabric between body and soul what about when we try to use money and possessions to meet the deep needs of our soul the place that god is only able to meet what about when we give a thought to our influence but only as far as it goes in accomplishing our agenda we tell you this, Trinity Grace, you are invited to be a people of presence, mercy, and prayer, living with and from the presence of God, receiving and giving the mercy of God, and making prayer the conversation of your life. So I want to just so simply ask you this morning to come to Jesus, this wild person who keeps the party going in one moment, and then later in the chapter is turning over tables at church with his arts and craft project, The Whip. What is going on? Come to him this morning as the son, the one who's opened the way into relationship with Trinity. As a high priest, 
a human being who knows your experience as a human being, who is an intercessor, who stands in the gap. I'm just going to read this so quickly. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Come into the temple, be the temple, so that we may receive and find grace to help us in our time of need. Come to Jesus as the son. Come to him as the high priest, but we also come to him as prophet. Speak the word I need to hear, the timely word for my heart today, the one that speaks specifically to my situation. I don't think you can hear Jesus as the prophet unless you also know him as the lamb. Because if you just hear him as a prophet, you're like, I'm never going to get there. And yet you, you come to know him as the lamb, and he is the one who has literally passed through twice for us. <laughs> he is the one who keeps the covenant at the cost of his own blood, at the cost of the most extravagant love we've ever known. The one who turns over the tables... Let's not make him into someone who's lost his temper, who's an abuser. The one who turns over the table in this prophetic act is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He moves in love, even when it costs. So our invitation is to be rid of what is stealing our life and hurting our neighbor today, to become people of presence, mercy, and prayer. What does that look like for you And let's ask the Holy Spirit to answer specifically. Heavenly Father, will you minister to your church right now? Will you minister to us in the particularities of our story, in the particularities of the uh, emotional storms we may have brought in, in the the specifics uh, uh, of what's happening this week, this day? And I think of them racing through the back of my mind even as I pray. Lord, I want to offer these things to you. I pray for us we could experience your ministry, that nothing would be a noisy market distracting us and keeping us out of your presence, away from your mercy, distracted from the conversation with you. Come, Holy Spirit, lead your church, lead your people right now. May we start at the table, and may we go forward into obedience and joy. In Christ's name, amen.